Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is Season 3, Part 11, The Archive. I'm going to read an excerpt from a review I wrote immediately after watching this episode back in 2017, and also some clips from a, a podcast that I appeared on at the time, The Lodgers Podcast. Um, during this period, I was invited to come on some different uh, shows, and that was fun. So this was one of them. And uh, after that, uh, with fair warning for, you know, upcoming spoilers, I'm going to play a clip from the first minute of part 12 and then describe what we see. So again, I'll give you a fair warning if you haven't watched it yet and you want to hold off, but we're going to dip our toe into the next episode before we conclude this uh, week. Here's what I wrote immediately after viewing the episode in 2017. Wow, I'm still tingling after this one. The first half hour of part 11 can stand with the first half hour of part 3 and the last half hour of part 8 is among the most sustained sequences of the return. Unlike those stretches, however, There's a Fire Where You Are Going jumps between many different characters and storylines. We're barely recovering from one traumatizing incident before we're thrust immediately into the next. From children discovering a bloody Miriam crawling out of the brush, astute viewers noted that there must be a reason she was still breathing last week, to Becky screeching into her phone and rushing from the house, knocking her mother from the hood of the car before racing into an apartment building and firing several shots into the door. Scored to a stabbing soundtrack, the camera careens through corridors and downstairs in a jagged, sped-up variation on Stanley Kubrick's signature shining shot, which Lynch has already made his own through numerous variations, in Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire, though never this fast and choppy. Finally, he settles on Stephen and his lover. I didn't identify her right away, but I am now pretty sure she's Donna's sister. The credit lists Alicia Witt as Gersten Hayward, and I can't think who else she would be in this episode. As they pant and hold each other, the shot is too quick to be called a breather. It's more like a quick gulp before diving into even deeper waters. In South Dakota, Twin Peaks takes perhaps its most direct cue from a recent prestige TV hit, evoking the sky swirls of True Detective, witnessed this time by Cole, C-O-L-E, rather than Cole, C-O-H-L-E. Twin Peaks' vision lingers longer and takes us further than the cosmic cyclone glimpsed in the bowels of Carcosa. But before Gordon is swept into a bleary tear in space and time, Albert pries him loose. Within minutes of this jittery threshold experience, they've discovered the headless corpse of Ruth Davenport, and Hastings' own head explodes, thanks to a woodsman who casually flickers in and out of view. Neither Davenport's body nor Hastings' head are sickeningly real so much as hypnotically Bacon-esque. They look like Lynch sculptures, and probably were. After this queasy crime scene, we receive a relative respite in the diner. Less violent, but still emotionally on edge, Bobby Shelley shippers, momentarily elated to discover Becky is indeed their mutual daughter, are instantly let down when Red arrives to make out with Shelley. Clearly, the teen lovers of season one and two are no longer together. Before our jangled nerves have had any chance to calm, Lynch offers up the most memorable traffic jam since Goddard's Weekend, or perhaps Lynch's own fire walk with me, comic, agitating, and terrifying in equal measure. It's spurred by a pint-sized hunter firing his father's gun. Dana Ashbrook does some of his best acting so far by simply reacting to this contained chaos with ever-evolving, finely-tuned expressions that mirror our own. This mini-episode of hellish anxiety climaxes as a middle-aged driver screams in short bursts while her child passenger rises from her seat like a zombie, ooze dribbling down the sides of her mouth, shuddering in the dim light as traffic horns sound a symphony of appalling yet somehow absolutely hilarious horror. Soon after writing this response, I appeared as a guest on the Lodgers podcast, 
to discuss this episode. Um, and, and actually, I think it's a testament to how successful that character is and that performance is that I've seen several people hypothesize that um, either either or um, the casino girls, the showgirls are emissaries from the from the from the White Lodge. Um, who are trying to shepherd Dougie somehow, which I don't buy, just for the record, but I'm throwing it out there. Um, I've also seen people hypothesize that or and uh, Candy is actually the Earth manifestation of Lodge Laura, which I don't think makes any sense, but I do think it's a hilarious idea. I heard that this morning or something, I think, on, on a forum. The same. Yeah, like, I get why people are thinking it in the sense that She's got that this sort of a strong presence, and she is like weirdly, like the mirror image of Dougie, which really makes me yeah. hope they have an interaction at some point. Um, but I feel like my main <laughs> thing was like, well, Lynch is never gonna have a Laura that's not played by Cheryl Lee. You know, whenever yeah. she comes back into it somehow, like the actress will be key to that. My, my main thing is like I can kind of square some of the things with Laura, and I can even square like her hunting a fly obsessively like that kind of seems like an that seems like a weirdly laura-ish thing to do um but i can't square like the whole thing the whole gag with the smacking robert nepper and then freaking out about it like i don't really see why they would need like a, a, yeah. a laura corollary character to do that do they actually um, have like but I, did, but I did find it to amusing. back it up like is there like a list of like here's all the things or is it just like oh no she's laura no i think i, I haven't seen any strong yeah. arguments anyway it, it, it seems to me that some of that is maybe like a reaction to this idea that, again, people might just be sort of generally mystified as to like why so much narrative weight is being given to this character yeah, who yeah. who probably won't ever really play much of a like kind of pivotal role in terms of sort of narrative development, but is just such a kind of like fabulous character and is so wonderful and like inexplicable. That's it for this episode of, uh, well, the part 11 part anyways. Now we're going to play the clip from part 12. So fair warning again, this is the first minute of the next episode. If you haven't watched it yet, you may want to hold off or you can listen to this as a teaser. Uh, It's going to be the audio and then I'm going to describe what we see. Thank God Gordon stocks the plane from his own wine cellar. No, you'll be the one to tell her. Ignore the strange man. Here's to the Bureau. To the Bureau. To the Bureau. Albert? Gordon. Okay. Here's what you need to know. Please speak succinctly and do not make any loud, sharp noises. Fade up on the exterior of a hotel in South Dakota. The first floor has a broad white stone facade. The upper floors are brick with white across the top of the windows and surrounding the three central windows. We can read the bottom of a neon sign flanking the left side of this building. The E and the L are vertical orange, with the word Mayfair spelled out in smaller blue print across the bottom. A street light, red light on, hovers just below or behind this hotel sign. On the ground floor of the hotel, there is a neon sign in every window, indistinct words in green or purple, and a green shield just to the left of the main entrance. 
an overhang propped up by two dark pillars. An illuminated window poster on the right side shows a lion's crest with social media tags below it, most prominently Facebook, while the other two are harder to read. On the right side of the frame, a tall street lamp of sorts, an apparent cylinder with a yellow lantern near its top, illuminates the sidewalk, as do those neon signs, while a narrow concrete pillar next to this features a parking sign. Five seconds in, we cut to a hotel room. Albert sits on a black leather couch, pouring red wine into a glass in front of Tammy. Several other bottles are gathered on a gold plate next to a silver tray with a metal ice bowl, a bottle of clear liquor, and a whiskey glass. Both trays rest, along with a glass ashtray, on a polished mahogany table. Tammy sits in a tan yellow chair, and Gordon stands next to a similar seat. Behind him are closed red curtains. Behind Albert, where the painting hangs, is a deep red wall. The floor carpet is mostly obscured, but we can see hexagonal shapes with rings of brownish-reddish color inside of them, a little bit reminiscent of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. When Albert dutifully pours, Gordon swivels in place, holding a red object in his right hand, small box shape with a steady white light. Tammy glances a couple times in his direction with a suggestion of minor exasperation, masked by tolerance of his strange behavior, and then Albert leans in to speak quietly to her, and she smirks in a friendly manner. He places the bottle back on the gold platter as Gordon takes his seat. From the moment he begins to sit down, the camera slightly reframes, moving in and down to adjust the headspace. Gordon is the first to take his glass, Tammy follows, and Albert picks up his own. A little over 20 seconds into the scene, there's a cut on the raising of the glasses and toast to an over-Albert's-shoulder medium shot of Gordon toasting. We see Albert lift his own glass and the two clink their drinks. Cut to a similarly framed shot of Tammy, smiling and pursing her lips as she toasts. Albert's out-of-focus profile now fills the left third of the frame. Cut back to the wide shot, all three glasses hovering near one another in the middle of the trio. After touching his glass to Gordon's, Albert gently taps Tammy's, raises his slightly in sync with the others, and then all three sip simultaneously. Albert and Gordon lower their glasses with minimal expression, while Tammy tilts her head and swallows after holding it back for a moment. As she lowers her glass, we cut back to the over-the-shoulder shot of Gordon, staring at Albert and speaking. Now, finally, a reverse over the shoulder of Albert, who taps his ear, and back to Gordon, who looks down and adjusts something on his listening device. Return to the group wide shot as Gordon finishes turning the knob. Albert shifts in his seat toward Tammy and speaks to her, but Gordon raises his hand, a gesture on which we cut to the over-the-shoulder shot of Albert, with Gordon's hand in the foreground. Albert turns towards Gordon as he lowers the hand. Cut to the over-the-shoulder shot of Gordon, squinting and pursing his lips as he speaks to Albert, and continuing to lower his hand, he shifts his glance toward Tammy, then back to Albert, back to Tammy, return to the wide shot, and his hand remains slightly aloft. Both Tammy and Albert stare at him, Albert with his hands clasped, Tammy holding her wrist over crossed legs. Albert shifts slightly and leans toward Tammy, who leans toward him, looking down but clearly listening to what he has to say. As she turns her head to look at him, we cut to a shot over her shoulder of Albert, staring at her intently as he speaks. The camera slides slightly to reframe with his lean. We may notice for the first time two pins on his lapel, the American flag and a golden circle with a vaguely protractor-like shape protruding. What appears to be a Masonic symbol. Our minute ends. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies tomorrow we kick off a week of a new episode part 13 so see you then thanks for listening